You're listening to After the Encore, the music podcast that explores what happens after the music fades, what happens after the encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and this is Volume 1, The Stars at Night, Track 1, with the Reverend Sean Amos. After the encore, I am Joe Shaw, and I am here with the Reverend Sean Amos. Rev, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you for asking. You're welcome um, for asking. I'm really excited to to dive into this episode, this track specifically, because your life is so interesting and fascinating to me. I'm a huge fan of blues music in general, and we're going to talk through your life, your career, and your music specifically, but something I'm really interested in, I kind of want to start here is you have a point where you talk about blues is a joyful music experience. I, I might be paraphrased exactly how you said that. That's accurate. Yeah. Right. But, uh, but for me, when I was growing up listening to blues, it was very, you know, like Howlin' Wolf, it was really guttural and soul and, and it seemed to come from a place of pain. But when I listen to your blues music, it's still the same blues, but it's coming from a place of upbeat positivity and joy. And I am interested as to your perspective on why maybe I might've had those two different feelings or maybe how blues has evolved or how you have viewed blues and how you interpret that specifically for you. Yeah. I had the same experience you did mm -hmm. when I first discovered blues, right? right? I discovered blues through Howlin' Wolf and Willie Dixon, yes. actually who's a pretty joyful cat. Yeah. Um, and junior, all that classic sort of Chicago style blues. And, um, and I definitely aligned it with music of being a pro music of oppression, music being, being down and out music right. of being, um, you know, longing for something. And that's why I dug about it. I right. Mean, right. <laughs> because, right. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Which, which is a lot about, Music in general, right? I mean, right. music is a lot of things, but popular music is certainly about alienation in large part and about, right. you know, sort of uh, wanting to find solace and uncomfortable emotions. Um, but, I, I, but I think also more importantly for me, I, I, I found it to be stereotypically African-American. Sure. Um, yep. Or, or, or black, I guess is what we used to say. Right. <laughs> um, right. And, and I, and I sort of, uh, I wanted to avoid that in my own okay. musical life. Sure. And so I stayed away. So I loved it as, as a listener, but I stayed away from it as a fan. I mean, let me tell you that. I stayed away from it. I stayed away from it as a, as a, as a musician, but, right. but I loved it as, as, as a listener. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, I got invited to sing it by, right. by some old bandmates. I've talked about this a lot that I sort of, it, it entered into my soul as a, as a player and as right. a singer. And I found that the reasons why I was avoiding it all those years as, as an artist were exactly the reasons why I needed to come to it because mm -hmm. it really served Absolutely. as, as a, as a, 
a vessel for me to figure out who I was. I mean, it, it, sort of, it sort of resolved a lifelong identity crisis. Right, right, me. right. Exactly. Uh, and, 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 and in that, it set me free, you know, yeah. to sort of to be me and to be the kind of um, black male that I choose to be versus what, you know, someone else or right. should, 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 should uh, say I should be. And so yeah. that was a joyful thing. And, and so right. the, the sort of, you know, the, 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 the sort of emancipation <laughs> of myself, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. you know, became right. a joyful thing. But right. the, the other trip is that, um, you know, I, I just find like it to be, and I always have thought this, you know, it, it's such, blues is such great music of resilience Yes, and, and it's such a great, um, such great evidence of, of, of the, 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 the strength of the human spirit. Right. And, and so for me, that's like, what's more joyful than that? It, yeah. It's like, we have the ability to reinvent ourselves. We have the ability to transcend. We have the ability right. to, um, always, you know, uh, to, you know, free will choice, you know? Right. Absolutely. And, and so blues and buys all that. And I just sort of figure well, man, this is yeah. how, how much joyful can it get? Absolutely. I know that, uh, my experience is going to therapy. One of the, one of the pieces of advice my therapist gave me is you never want to get over a problem, right? You never mm -hmm. want to get over and push it away. You want to work through it and come out the other side because he talked about the struggle in working through the problem and the pain points and understanding that is what weathers you and allows you to move forward with clarity. Yeah, yeah, totally. And if you put free. it, if you were, if you just get over it, you're just ignoring the pain and the problem, but working through it. And I, and what I love about blues is to your point, what is so joyful about it is you can feel and hear that resilience in the music, right? It's almost as if people are working through problems or pain points or discussing it in real time. Well, it's so elemental, right? I mean, right. I, I think it's probably the thing that, you know, particularly in this day and age when we're, we we need so much sensory overload to right. to activate our brains yeah. um, that the the elemental nature of blues and the simplicity of it uh, I can see why it could be dismissed by a lot and sort of this is not enough for my brain to, right. you know, to be occupied but I think if if you're if you're able to if one is able to slow oneself down and and to not to um, you know, not to break the addiction, at least temporarily right. from all the ear right. candy and right. all the right. lights and whistles, exactly. then I, blues, is, it's so elemental and it's, it cuts so directly to the bone right. in, in an emotional way that it's really, um, I, I don't find any other music to be so uh, universally understood, one. Right. I mean, I've never played in front of an audience, it doesn't get it at some point yeah absolutely. Uh, and, and, and there's not a lot of other there are other kinds of music but there's not a lot of other kinds of music that can really um just sort of remove all the clutter and just burrow a direct path right into your part Agreed. you know i mean you know punk can do that but punk is blue sort of sped up and yeah you know, and, and, and and more aggro yeah and, and the intensity and the, and the aggression of punk can put some put some people off just like right. the yeah. elementalness of blue of blues can right right you know, um, i think certain rock does um yeah but i don't know man i want to blues is sort of it yeah <laughs> yeah no it's good it's good and so i want to kind of use that as an entryway into really examining kind of your life growing up so i know a lot of people probably talk about the fact that you're the son of wally amos famous amos mm -hmm. cookies um but what was what was your life like growing up? You're from LA, is that correct? I was born in New York and raised in Los Angeles. Okay, that's right. Until high school, I moved around a bit. Okay. High school and college. So what was it like for you um, growing up 
in the environment of, I know, I know uh, one, one article quoted it as you had the kind of grit and glamour, right? And so it was, it was right. And it was the, it was the kind of glamour of being the son of famous Amos, but also the grit of being in LA during that time period. And that was during the the seventies. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And so there was a lot going on from a historical perspective, especially being, you know, a African-American male or child in LA during the seventies. Mm-hmm. And, and so talk me through what kind of some of your earliest memories were from your perspective and then kind of how that has evolved and kind of shaped and influenced how you've grown up today. Damn, that's a big question. Right. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, we're, we're here for the long haul, but. Um, well, I, I think I grew up in, uh, w- with a few um, uh, contradictory pieces of information being thrown at me. Right. Uh, sure. so, so on one side, my father was a celebrity and he was, and he, and he was um, part of the entertainment business. Right. You know, he, he, he was a, uh, a talent agent and then a personal manager for talent. And then he started famous Amos. And so his, his business was show business. Um, and, and so that was a world I knew and not like in a glamorous sense. It's like, those are how people made their living. Right. Like people make their exactly. living as a dentist or as the you know, IT professionals or whatever. Right. And people made their living working in recording studios or right. working on sets. And so I, I understood that industry as being really a, a business first and foremost and, right. and a craft. And, and now, and I love that. I, I still do it. That's why I do what I do. Right. Um, so that's one. And on the other end was sort of Hollywood as like my, my step parent, the city of Hollywood in the seventies, which was right. kind of, you know, not dissimilar to times square in the seventies or a lot sure. of American cities in the seventies, right. which were, um, you know, kind of, you know, reeling from a little bit of economic, not depression, but, but recession. Right. Uh, they, it, it was the, you know, they were sexually liberated, discovering sexual liberation. Right. Um, Hollywood in particular draws a lot of counterculture. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of, um, a lot of shit that, you know, kids, most kids probably don't see right, right, or, right. or shouldn't see. I mean, right. you know, my, my, the house, and then, so that's another thing and I can get details later. And then the other part of it was, um, my mother, who was severely mentally ill, right. uh, uh, psychotic, and, and so living with with that, uh, and then I think, uh, yeah, those are probably the, 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 those three things sort of working. Yeah. With, I guess I guess the last piece yeah. was sort of the, the the sort of my my parents were the first gen, were, were were the first recipients of the benefits of the civil rights movement, right? Okay. So, so, so they, okay. they 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 were young adults in the '60s. Right. They grew up in the South in the you know in the in the '40s and '50s. So they were they knew what it was like to be um, victims of segregation and Jim Crow laws. Right. They couldn't vote, and they could vote, right? right? And so they moved to Los Angeles. And, and took part in the system that their their parents were excluded from, right. and so that was, they were they saw it as a victory to be the first black family to move into a white neighborhood sure. to send their kid to an all white you know, private school. Sure, yeah. And, and 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 that was a total victory for them. It made my life and a lot of and the lives of a lot of I think black kids you know my age growing up my age. Um, it made it tricky, right? Because we were yeah. sort of, we were we weren't integrating we were integrating these neighborhoods not in the way that you know, it was happening in Alabama. Right, <laughs> right, right, exactly. But, but, but we were definitely, like, I didn't know a black kid until I was in ninth grade. You know, I, I didn't have, 
I, I, I had no access to black culture other than sure. in the exact same ways that you had access to black right, culture. Right, right, exactly. Uh, yeah. and, and so that was sort of a mind fuck, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so so those are the, sort of the four things, right? So, you know, Hollywood is his parent. You know, my father is part of this, you know, entertainment dude, um, you know, a mentally ill mother, and then this, you know, black kid who's sort of living in this white, you know, world. Right. Um, and, and that all, all of that soup really, um, I'm, I'm still trying to, you know, yeah. undo the damage. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> or, 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 or or reap the rewards. Right. It's a bit of both. Now, so you're, you spoke about your mother, and your mother is, uh, she performed under the stage name Shirley May, mm-hmm. correct? So walk me through uh, the, so were your parents, were you raised separately? Who did you My parents with? divorced when I was seven. Okay. My dad was you're never seven. around much to begin with. My mother, you know, essentially raised me. But I mean, I, I'd say that I was raised you know, a lot by, you know, friends and family and, sure. and, and freaks on the street. But, right. but I, I, I live with my mother you yeah. know, uh, grow, until I went to, uh, I moved to Hawaii in uh, 10th grade to live with my father and my stepmother. Okay. And then I ran away and then I sort of drifted around for a little bit. I came back to live with my mother and then I went to boarding school uh, for 11th and 12th grade. Okay. Primarily as a place to live. So you ran away from your parents in Hawaii. Yeah. Or your your dad and your stepmom. Yeah. And then where where did you, did you just make your way back to your mom? Yeah, I was working as a bag boy in a supermarket in Hawaii. Oh, wow. And I, and I picked up my last paycheck and bought a plane ticket. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> this God. This is the days where you could like literally. You know, right. You know, just you, walk up one-way ticket, into a no, plane, no, yeah, questions no questions asked. asked. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and I hopped on a plane and I... Uh, and for a couple of weeks, I, um, I'd sneak in and out of a friend's house. Oh, wow. He didn't tell his parents. So I'd sneak in after his parents went to sleep. I'd sneak out before they woke up. Oh, my God. Uh, and then I'd spend the day roaming around Hollywood. And then I, I got old and I finally went to my mom's door. How, and, how long did you do that? About a couple Stay weeks, just a couple of weeks. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and I went and this is, yeah, I was, I was 15. And I okay. went and uh, got to my mom's place. And then I, that didn't go well. And then I ended mm-hmm. up, uh, moving out and living with some friends in LA okay. friends, family, no, actually two different friends, families. And then, uh, the second family, uh, told me about boarding school. Uh, yeah. I never heard of boarding school. Right. It's not part of California sort of culture. And so we, you know, kind of a new England kind of thing. I got you. I'm like boarding school. What the hell is that? <laughs> yeah. it, but it seemed like a cool place just to have a place to live away, right. away from, you know, the, the, the problem, which was sort of my parental thing. Yeah. And so, um, so I, I had been kicked out of school by that point. So I, 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 I I, uh, my, when, when I knocked to my mom's door, I enrolled in Beverly Hills high school Yeah. and, uh, I got kicked out a couple months later. Uh, I wasn't going and I was yeah. you know, high it's when like I was truancy going. And, 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 yeah. and so I got kicked out. I was going to, I was going to continuation school and I was going to get my GED and figure right. it out. And so, uh, and I was in GED, I was in, I was in continuation school Yeah. and, um, I looked around like, no fucking way. They're just, I was like, it was like a real loser class. I mean, right. I, I'm like, this is not, I go, this can't be how it's going to go. Yeah. Uh, and so the boarding school thing sounded pretty good yeah. know, compared to the continuation thing. So I applied and I had to repeat my junior year. Oh wow. Uh, that was sort of the, con- that was the, the, uh, the stipulation under which okay. I was accepted. And so, and so I said, yeah, I'll do that. And so I went to new England and that, Turn my shit around, you know, because sure. it was it was like I could be away from all that right. source of that crap that was yeah. you know, in my life, and I could sort of you know live or die by my own you know means. Yeah, and it seems like like you to your point, the biggest the biggest hurdle and the biggest 
complications that you were having was this constant back and forth of, you know, which parent am I going to live with or which home life? And I'm not sure what I want to do. And so being at a place where it's like, this is where you live, this is where you stay, this is where you go to well, class. stable, right? It was stable. stable. I mean, right. I had one parent stable. who wasn't capable of being a parent and I had another right. parent who was, wasn't super interested in it. And, yeah. and so, um, yeah, just, just to have the stability was, was kids need stability. Kids need stability. They do. Man. It's true. It's true. <laughs> it's true. It's so Any true. parents listen right, out there, right. kids need stability. <laughs> But the, I saw an interview with your dad in, uh, I don't remember exactly when it was, if it was in the eighties or the late seventies, but I remember he was on local news and he was talking about how he had just had uh, a new baby, right? It was a, uh, it was a uh, sister Sarah. Probably. Yes, yeah. that's what it was. And so talk to me about how you, you mentioned that you had uh, one parent who was not fit to be a parent, another parent who wasn't interested. When did you see that shift between not wanting to be a parent? And then be wanting to be a parent. Did you see that shift in them? In in your father, yeah. No. Okay. 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 <laughs> no, that's good. No, I, mean, I, I don't think my father ever had much interest in it. I mean, yeah. I, I think that. Uh, yeah, I don't think he ever had much interest in it. Yeah, and I think he did. You know, the best he could do, given the fact that he was disinterested. Right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, I think he. I think he. Uh, yeah, that's a tough. Yeah, I mean. What, what, what can I say about that one? Yeah, no, no, yeah, it's good. It's it's hard because I know that I've spoken to just in in general people that have fathers who who may not be interested, and I think it's 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 a constant struggle where you see uh, being a father myself, and I know you're a father as well. You see this kind of struggle between you know, you want to do all you can to provide for your kid, but you also see other fathers who aren't as interested or maybe they have different priorities or maybe their interpretation of providing is going out and trying to immerse themselves in work or you see a wide variety of spectrums. Right? Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, I think that's, that's an age old problem, right? I sure. Mean, you know, fathers as a, you know, men are still hunters, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, by, yeah. I mean, that, 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 that sort of stereotypical 1950s kind of right. you know, family dynamic is, right. is still, kind of in place. I mean, it's dying slowly and morphing into, you know, other kinds of, and they're kind of dynamic. Yeah. And I think that's super cool and overdue, but, but for the most part, there's still that kind of, you know, the man goes out and hunts and, you know, and comes back and the woman stays and takes care of the kids. Right. And, and I think a lot of fathers find themselves in that kind of scenario, mm -hmm. right. Where they're going out there and they're hunting and they come back and they feel like, you know, the hunting is enough, right? Right, <laughs> yeah. right. I'm, I'm hunting, and yeah. you know, isn't that enough? I'm, br I'm bringing yeah. back, uh, you know, the food. I'm yeah. bringing back the means of, with which to survive. Totally. Why and, do I need to do more? And providing versus being you know, emotionally available to right. totally different things. Right. And, and, um, yeah. and I think men, you know, I think men struggle with that in general, being emotionally available. Yeah. And there's the whole, you know, but I think, um, and my dad did, and I, and I do to some degree. I mean, sure. I, 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 it's, um, you know, particularly if you, if you live an emotional life, you know, and, right. and if you and if you're an artist, uh, you know, you're in an emotional space all the time anyway. And, right. And, and so it, it, it it's enough to manage your own emotional life and right. manage you know the emotional life of others. Um, it can be exhausting, yeah. sure. Yeah, and I got broken by the summer game. I, I'm divorced. Yeah. I mean, right. so, yeah, and I and I uh, and just in my divorce is due to many reasons, as most right. are. But but one reason for sure is that I I definitely. Uh, was was crushed under the weight of uh, the emotionality that exists within you know, a marriage and raising three children, and and it right. was it, it it definitely broke me to some degree. Right, and I think you know it, it it's interesting you you talk about the fact that your parents were the recipients of 
the civil rights movement, right? And, and getting to move into an all white neighborhood. And so was your, your perspective, cause you, you talked a, a lot about how, you know, you're being integrated, but not in integration, like in Alabama, but you're being integrated through, through means and through the ability to like, now we're allowed to do this. We've are we've been able to do it for a while, but now we're able to, so we're just going to go ahead and do it. Did you find this kind of, um, I don't, know if I want to quite say identity crisis, but maybe a little bit of an identity crisis. identity crisis. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just like, well, I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of a weight associated with that. And so I just want to make sure that I'm properly representing, you know, maybe a struggle you felt with, which is being a black man and, and growing up in this predominantly all white environment and trying to find your voice as a young up and coming black male. I didn't think I was black growing up. Okay. So th- that's part of the trip. And that's, yeah. how, that's how deep the identity crisis goes. <laughs> you know, I absolutely did not think I was black, right? Yeah. Because uh, I had no reflection of that, like quite literally, sure. other than you know, my family. Right. Um, there was very little reflection of that in the media at the time. Yeah. And I went to school with you know, my entire, not even school, my entire world uh, was, was white. Uh, yeah. And so um, in many respects, you know, I aspired you, you, you know, you're young, you aspire to be around the people you're around for the right. most part. So I, I, sure. I aspired to be white yeah. you know, for a lot of my life. Right. Uh, not, and I wouldn't have constantly said that at the time. Right, right, right. But, but that, that's, what, that, back, that's yeah. what was happening. Yeah. Uh, and, and my heroes were largely white and my, and my, and the media I dug was white and the music I dug was white. And, yeah. You know, I, I realized that so much of it owed itself to black culture. Right. You know, later on. Right. At the time, I was sort of standing at the altar of white heroes like everybody else. Right. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that that was, so it, it, it didn't seem abnormal. The disconnect didn't start happening for me until, you know, I started <sighs> engaging more in the world, you know? And, yeah. And, and so I, I remember I was, I even in a place like Hollywood, I mean, seventies and you know, LA is a liberal bubble and blah blah blah. Right. But it's still a pretty segregated town. You know, yeah. Well said, done. And, and there are there are black neighborhoods in LA, uh, and they are segregated from the white neighborhoods where I lived. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and and so and, and and I remember, you know, early experiences. You know, dating white girls at my school and their parents freaking out and you know what the fuck's that about? You know? Right. Or, or, or like more so than just like you're a guy coming to date my daughter, right? Oh no, like over like right, yeah. yeah. They, they were they were blunt about it. Yeah, I mean, and, and hearing you know the word nigger as a kid, and not really knowing what the hell is that about. So right. so it wasn't like I was immune from these you know racist episodes because they happen from time to time for sure. Right, uh, but I didn't quite. Uh, I was ill-equipped to handle it because I, I didn't sure. Um, I didn't have that image of my. I didn't, I didn't think I was black. Number right. One. And, and 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 two, my parents. You know, the second part of what they thought saw as a victory to the civil rights thing was okay. We're going to send our kid to a white school. We're going to live in all white in a white neighborhood, um, but we're also not going to feed this conversation. So because oh, okay. if you talk about, it, then you give it strength, right? That's sort of their mo. Okay. So, I see what you're saying. So yeah, so yeah, if yeah. like you know, I, I tell the story before. It's a funny story where you know. I mean, funny in a weird way, but my first, my dad first opened his fam- first famous Amos store as a cookie store in Hollywood, standalone store, and the store was previously a a, uh, a pinball joint because it was popular <laughs> in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, when he took when he took occupancy of the place, he and I 
we're cleaning it up, like tearing up the carpet. I'm seven sure. years old. So I'm helping <laughs> tear up the carpet, you know, pick up cigarette butts, right. you know, literally cleaning the place up, turn it into a cookie store. And this guy, and there, there's a big homeless problem in, in, in Hollywood in the 70s. It's, it's kind of reemerging now. And this guy was homeless and kind of fucked up, wandered in, opened the door, and was saying, what are you guys doing in there? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably thinking we were robbing. Uh, who knows right, yeah. And my dad said, uh, we're opening a store selling cookies. And he said, nigger selling cookies. And then he walked out. And that's just a funny phrase. Yeah. Kind of, nigger selling cookies. <laughs> it's right. like this. It's like, it should be like a title of an album or something. Right. But, but, um, but so there's this absurdity in the phrase to begin with. Right. But it, you know, it was the first time I ever heard the word. He sure. clearly was not saying it with love. Right. And, 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 and he jetted out. And I looked to my dad for an explanation of some sort. Yeah. And he said, oh, some people. And, and that was always his thing. Always both my parents' thing. They just okay. would never want to talk about. It's like World War II vets who don't want to talk about the war. Sure. Yeah. That's yeah. Sort yeah. Of their okay. trip, right? Sure. They just don't talk about it. And so, right. I know information. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No information. And right. uh, and so and I didn't think to seek it out that much because I was sort of living in my, you know, my classic rock, you know. 70s bubble <laughs> right right <laughs> uh, so it, it, it took a while for me to um want to dig out information to want to you know face my own truth about right. you know the ways in which i maybe had, like unconsciously sold myself out you know? yeah uh and in ways in which i had unconsciously subjugated my own self mm-hmm. uh and and then and then coming to you know grips with that then it's that i sort of came to grips with that in, in at the height of like you know gangster rap and nwa sure. and, and a whole like emergence of real militant you know black hood right and i didn't relate to that either yeah know? and so it was you know it was a difficult way to figure out well where is my sort of you know version of blackness or sure. my version of you know how do, how do i reconcile this um yeah it, it's been a it's been a trip <laughs> like a reptile and she loved him she loved him but just for a short while he scratched in the sun and won't let go of his hand man he says he's a beautician and he sells you nutrition and he keeps all your dead hair for making up underwear <laughs> oh little greenie Welcome back to the After the Encore. I am Joe Shaw, and I'm here with the Reverend Sean Amos. And that was a great introduction that you took us through with regards to your childhood and your perspective on your culture and your life growing up. Now, looking back several years later, kind of a 
kind of a thing. So I want to talk about, you mentioned that you were in boarding school up through when you graduated, right? So take me through what the next steps were. Cause you, that was the point where you really got your shit together and you really doubled, <laughs> right? Per your words, per your words, yeah, right? For, for a minute. Right, right. <laughs> but um, enough to get out of high school. We're all like right? our shit together and losing our shit, right. our shit together and losing our shit. Our shit I mean, together, that's together. human nature, right? <laughs> but, but walk me through what the next steps were after you got out of boarding school and started pivoting towards college. Cause you went to school in NYU. Is that correct? Yeah. I went to uh, B in my freshman year that transferred to NYU film school. Okay. Yeah. So what was that like for you? What was the, the kind of, what was going through your life during those periods of time? Um, it's funny you ask that because my, my, my oldest daughter is about to start her freshman year at B, uh, in a couple months. So, so it's sort of, uh, I've, I've been thinking a lot about sort of, you know, my college life. Sure. Uh, and I think in, in, in many respects, I, you know, I, I treated college like a, you know, vocational school. You know, mm. I, I was less interested in, you know, a liberal arts education or, or, or meeting people or all the sort of social stuff that goes with college. I sort of was really, I was really laser focused. I wanted to learn a task, sure. you know, learn a trade and get the fuck out. Right. And, and, and I, and I regret that because particularly after, you know, touring with my daughter and sort of seeing what an amazing time is in your life to just yeah. float and just discover whatever you want to discover and, you know, and, and follow your, your muses wherever they may go without, that that's like your job at that right. time in your life, and and so I I'm 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 kind of bummed I didn't take a theology class. Yeah, <laughs> or, right, right. Or, or, well, you got to be careful with some of those, yeah, huh? or, or whatever, <laughs> or take some you know African studies or whatever that yeah. was. But yeah, I, I was I was really myopic about the whole thing. Um, so so yeah, it was all kind of a blur. I think the other thing too for me is that you know, and I, I find I, I still fight this that you know, I wasn't like I wasn't present. You know, it, it's mm. sort of like you know. I think it's always, it's like a big thing for me. It's like, how, how do you just be present, you know, with the people you're with and the, you know, we're having this conversation right. now and, and it's like, you know, how can I just be present for you? And, right. and, 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 and versus sort of clocking time or thinking right. about where I'm going to be next or where I've got to, where I was, you know, an hour ago. Right. And, and, and I think in college I was sort of at the, probably the peak of not being present. Sure. Yeah. And, and so I was just passing through. And yeah. one, one of my greatest buddies, uh, he was my college roommate at BU, and we're still friends to this day. And I have this memory. I, I thought I was visiting him in college with my, with my, uh, my daughter. He, he, one day he observed me walking down Com Ave, Commonwealth Avenue. It's like mm-hmm. the main drag that runs down uh, the middle of Boston University's okay. campus. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, uh, and so there's like buildings on one side of it, there's buildings on the other side of it, and this avenue runs down the middle. And he said, dude, you're, I saw you walking down Com Ave. Like you were like a bad out of hell like what do you like why used to rush you're walking like a million miles an hour to nowhere (laughs) and and that's sort of like there's always been like my mo like i'm just this beeline from a to b right and and it's um i I know a lot of gigs i do too like i have to really force myself if i'm coming off a stage or i'm doing meet and greets or whatever to like be present and like and acknowledge people right and, and versus like yeah how you doing how you doing how you right doing? yeah you know, patting and moving around boom, boom. yeah and, and i feel like i'm always sort of um i have a, I have a tendency to just sort of be passing through sure and, and, and i and i i want to change that in yeah. myself but that it was at the, that was that was at the peak of my college experience yeah. so I, I honestly don't remember much about it it was kind yeah. of a blur I, I was just passing through it's interesting because i think that's such a uh a, a thing that a lot of people struggle with, which is, you know, we're always thinking about what's the next thing, what's the next thing, whether it's the immediate next thing or the next thing 10 years down the road yeah. or the next project or, or whatever. And it's, it's hard to authentically be in the moment 
with the person that you're talking to yeah, or, or the thing that you're doing. You totally. Know? I think it's also, for me, it's, I think it's a fear of, it's also feel like being like, you know, found out, right? I mean, oh, it, sure. If you're like, like imposter syndrome. Yeah, almost, if you're uncomfortable, if you're uncomfortable yeah. with yourself or you're not owning your stuff, then, you know, to be in someone's presence and to really look them in the eye is a vulnerable place to be. Right. And what am I revealing myself that I'm spending so much time otherwise keeping secret, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so yeah. That, that was a trip for me at the time for sure. Because I had, I, you know, there's a lot of shame around, you know, how I grew up and, you know, with my mother. And, and, and so I think I was, mm-hmm. um, it, it was, it was difficult for me to yeah. sort of be present and just soak up the space I was in. And, right. And, and uh, so I missed out a lot of what college was about because, yeah. because of that. And I know that you, was it a real drive for you post-college to immediately go into the entertainment industry? Because I know both, both of your parents had careers in the entertainment yeah. industry with your dad producing music. Is that correct? No, he wasn't a producer. He, he was a manager. He was an agent and then a manager. Agent yeah. and manager. That's right. You were the pr- producer. I've produced a lot right. of my life. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and your mother being a performer. So what was that like for you? Did you want to immediately go into the entertainment industry or did you kind of see like, maybe this is something I could go into at some point? No, or I, I was, was wired for it from, yeah. from the get go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's again, that's the vocational thing. I mean, I went to NYU sure. film school. I was going to go, you know, be a filmmaker and, and I got a first look deal. Uh, with a company in my junior year of college. And oh, so wow. I left, I didn't graduate. I'm like, mission accomplished, I'm out. <laughs> right, yeah, like I, you set out what you wanted yeah, to do. Yeah, I had no basically. interest in, again, the broader sort of you know college experience. I went right. there to learn a skill, to meet some people, to make some connections, to get a deal. And I, I did it and, and I split. Um, yeah. and, and so I went straight from college out of my junior year into a first look deal. I wrote a bunch of screenplays. Yeah. And and that was, I just set on a, on a path. And it wasn't due to any like, you know, it wasn't like a following in a footsteps thing or, 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 you know, you must go into the industry. I mean, right. my parents like encouraged like, me not to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to the extent they ever sort of gave me career advice, but, um, it, it's just, it's just what I've always loved. I, I love, you know, there's always two things I loved about entertainment. One is, it's just amazing. It's amazing to create something out of nothing. It's one of the great miracles of life right. oh my god it's like nothing exists and all of a sudden there's something there right <laughs> it's exactly. amazing exactly. which a song or movie or a podcast i mean it's just out of your imagination you, you pull something out of thin air and, and, and you divine this thing to happen and it, it's just it, I, I love that it's one of the most magical things in life uh and then secondly is I, I love i love the community around creative people i mean we're sitting yeah. here now with your producer and your photographer and right you know, I, I i love uh, the key, that's what I loved about filmmaking when I made films. I, I love the fact that always people come together to make something. You yeah. know, some guy's willing to hold a microphone over his head for 12 hours <laughs> yeah. you know, to make something. Someone's right. willing to you know, build you know, mass sets. I mean, yeah. people all you know, lend their talent and their craft for the shared vision. It's, I mean, sports is like that too, but I've never been wired for sports. But yeah. you know, the people coming together to serve a shared vision is, is really powerful for me, particularly creative visions right. versus like political visions or, yeah. or religious visions. Right. Um, so I, I, those are the two things that are always just from day one have just wired me to, yep. to be involved in, in, in creative endeavors. It's really good. I, you mentioned being in a creative community and that's one of the things you really love about it. And I feel, I feel that too, because you can really feel almost like a, like a, 
like a vibration among people. Like when you get together and with enough creative people in a creative yeah. space, you can really feel the ideas almost like pulsating off of each other. Yeah, and it's, totally. it's a really cool thing to feel. And then when you start kind of putting pen to paper, it's like there's no limit to what you can create. And I think that's, that's what's really engaging about the community aspect that you reference. Yeah, it's magic. I mean, that's what I loved about film school. I mean, I, I, I mean, I saw us passing through and I was, but I mean, I, I definitely, those moments of making student films together and coming together on projects, even in boarding school, I, I was involved in, that's my first sort of experience in being involved in theater. And whether I was acting, which I briefly, briefly thought I wanted to do and realized I didn't, or just working on sets. I mean, I love yeah. being part of that kind of team. Right, and I love, so I love that being in a band. I love yeah. being, I love being on the road still. Yeah, um, you know, in, in a van with a bunch of guys and a tour manager and sound guy, and I, I love that. I just love the sort of band of you know gypsies all, right. you know, trying to, you know, fight some you know system. Right, 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 <laughs> uh, right. I, I dig it. I dig it. I like it. Now you you mentioned that uh, one of the things that, and this is something I want to touch on before we move on, but one of the things you talked about about going to going to school with a very like, I want to meet these people, get these connections, get this offer, learn this skill, and then book it, book it out, right? Like it's very a checklist order yeah. of things to do. Do you? It's very Virgo. I'm a right. Virgo. It's still yeah. Virgo. Right. <laughs> <laughs> do you uh, do you feel that maybe when you also talked about the the inability to to be present sometimes and, and be authentically there in the moment? Do you think that's kind of in line with the you know you're seeing people as a means to an end or a connection at, at a certain point in your life, and then now you're trying to see people for you know who they are, their authentic selves in the moment? Do you find trying to reconcile the two almost subconsciously? Hmm. I don't know. I I I think I, I think I'm I think I'm I'd like to think I'm very good at being present now. Sure. I, I think I hold right. space for people, and and I and I enjoy holding space for people, uh, and I and I am aware and and value exchanges for for what they are. Right. You know, I, it, it's sort of thing of like lingo of expectations, right? Yes. You know, that you know, like the Stones tune, no expectation. I mean, so you know, I I have no expectations. I dreams, I have desires, and you know, but I I have no expectations of any relationship. Sure. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm there and I'm going to let the moment sort of dictate what it's going to be. Mm. And, and I'm like that with my performances as well. I've, you know, I, I, I prepare right. the best of my ability, right. but once it's off, it's off and I have no expectations of, of what's going to happen. Right. And, and that frees me up a lot to, to be happier and, and, and to be more present for sure. people. So I don't, I don't, I don't think that, um, and, and I'm really clear about, you know, who, the reasons why people are in my life. Yeah, you know, I mean, everyone's in your life for different kinds of reasons. Right. Yeah. You know, um. Yeah. You know, it's such an LA thing to call everyone your friend, right? Like, <laughs> everyone's your friend. Right. And I, and I only recently, like in the last, I don't know how long, but yeah, you know, realized that, like, it's okay to like, you know, some people are acquaintances and some people are friends and right. some people are colleagues and some people are, you know, business associates and some people are fuckers and right. people, you know, whatever but it's yeah. like you know, not, one, not one's your friend right right <laughs> and, and, and that's cool and yeah, that's okay you know? yeah so I've I, I, I had to sort of like undo my LA-ness in that regard yeah. uh, but there's freedom in that too right, right. Where, where I don't necessarily need to like um, use like the promise of friendship as, as leverage or collateral right. to get something I really want from a business thing. Cause that's, right. that's super disingenuous. Yes. Right? And yes. so, you know, I've got friends that are really dear and, and some of them I work with and some of them I don't. And that, right. and that's cool. You know? Yeah. And, and I've got you know, people I work with who we have great working relationships and we're not friends at all. And that's cool. Right. And I think that's 
that it's taken me a while to figure that out. You know, yeah. Versus like everyone's got to be my friend, and I've got to work with all my friends, or I got to figure out how I can, you know, yeah, move people around like chess pieces or some yeah. shit. It's hard, and it's I think it's also very burdening to try and approach each relationship with that perspective, as opposed to saying, no, I'm perfectly happy just working with this person, and we don't need to go out for a beer after, you know, on on every Friday night or whatever the case yeah. may be. You know, we don't need to chat every once in a while. It's it's fine. We've got the relationship we've got, and that's good. Whereas the person over here, you're you've got a great, stable, long term relationship yeah. with them, but you don't need to go and involve them in, you know, like I'm gonna bring you on tour with me, and like what would <laughs> they do, right? You know, what I mean, <laughs> my father used to do that. He would like hire people because he just had this like instinct. Uh, you seem like a really good person. Come be my CFO. It's like what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, you seem like a really good guy. Come, like, let me like yeah, be my accountant, right? Uh, but I'm not an accountant. Who right. cares? You'll learn, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> that. It's a slippery slope. It's a <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So, so now pivoting a little bit more, what I want to what I want to focus on is is a lot of your music and your kind of journey to get to blues. We touched on it a little bit at the beginning. I know we're going to touch on it a lot in the last segment, but but I know that your mother passed away in two thousand and three, and you had an album that was kind of you had a song. Uh, the album was "Thank You, Shirley." Shirley May. Thank you, Shirley May. Yeah. That's right. So talk me through what her passing meant for you and how you processed that and were able to generate the album as a result of that. Uh, I, I, I think you're always processing a death like that. Sure. Uh, so my, my mother committed suicide in 2003. Uh, she had what's called schizoaffective disorder, which is a combination of uh, sort of schizophrenia. It's like bipolar and schizophrenia. Sort okay. Of mix. It's a pretty messed up mental cocktail. Um, and so she was psychotic my whole life. And, uh, she was, she also sexually abused me, uh, for a good chunk of my life, which mm. I, uh, which I had not said publicly till earlier this year. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, when she committed suicide there, I think a lot of people feel some, they sort of lose a parent like that. I mean, you know, when you have a difficult relationship with a parent, I think when the parent's gone, there's party that's just relieved. Sure. And, then, and then what immediately follows is guilt that you feel relieved. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so that that happened for me, uh, for sure. Um, and the process I went through immediately following her death was I, I had this discovery of this life she had, which I knew a little bit about, but not fully. I knew that she, sure. my dad had met when she was a singer. I knew she sang. I knew she quit singing because of my father. I, I, I thought it was as simplistic as that. I mean, sure. I, it was due to her illness. And, uh, and that's sort of it. But what I realized after she died and going through her things that she'd kept hidden from me all these years is that, you know, she was signed to Mercury Records and she actually was really like had a full career. And wow. She had an agent, she had a manager and she studied at Carnegie Hall with the same guy who taught vocals to, with the vocal coach who taught Lena Horne and Marilyn Monroe. And she was definitely a rising star yeah. and, and her career was cut short in part because she got married and chose to give it up or maybe was forced to give it up. And in part because she just didn't have the inner sort of strength to mm. navigate that world. Right. right. Uh, and maybe she would have not even been around as long as she was if she had you know, made, sure. made uh, she kept her career going. So anyway, so, so in discovering this thing about her life, right. it was really comforting for me to um, see her as a healthy woman. Because right. I never knew that woman. You know, the woman I knew was unhealthy from the day I was born, sure. and 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 was you know uh, uh, abusive in this in this way. And so to see this woman who was beautiful and vibrant and vital and kicking ass and doing her thing, you know, a young woman living in New York, a black woman in New York alone, and yeah, yeah, super like courageous stuff. Yeah, definitely. And so 
it, it enabled me to like go, oh, that's where I get a lot. A lot of things I attribute to my father. I'm like, oh, that was actually from her. I right. Yeah. yeah and, and, and and to see her as the strong woman was was really helpful to me. And so and it was part of my healing, and it helped me sort of go through at least the, the initial wave of recovery. Sure. You know, there are other ways that would come and knock me over, and it's a continual process. But th- it definitely that discovery of that life helped me to. Um, no, I deal with the trauma of the suicide, but also to um, gain some empathy and some forgiveness and some understanding of her. And so that all came out in this album. Thank you, Shirley May, <clears throat> which was this concept album. That was really just my uh, my imagining of what her life must have been like during those days. Sure. So, you know, like living young and black and beautiful in New York City in the 60s. Right. And, 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 it, and, and, and also, you know, the undercurrent of this emerging mental illness of hers. And so um, it, it, was, it was really cathartic to make it. And it got a great reception. And it was, um, it was funny. It was cathartic to make it. At the same time, it was, it was, it was, um, it, it was, difficult to have to like relive it over and over again through interviews sure. and all this kind of stuff. So yeah. it's sort of a double edged sword. Right. You know? I found a lot of solace in making it making it was better than sort of promoting it. Sure. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because making it was sort of a private experience. Right. Um and, and then once I released it and had to sort of, you know, make this part of my life public yeah. that was a little painful at the time right because uh, you're you're telling the same story over and over and yeah, over so again like open up a scab over and over yeah again. um but, it, but I'm, I'm glad i did it and it, it definitely was um it also was a thing for me it was it was the last time until now really really like you know over 15 years later it was the last time i ever wrote from such a confessional place like uh, up, yeah. you know I, i'd made two albums before shirley may one called harlem and another one called in between and they're pretty autobiographical in a lot of respects and Shirley May was really confessional, um, and I and I sort of that album sort of I was done, right, <laughs> sort yeah. of making confessional, autobiographical, personal, first person music. And I think another thing I really liked about going to the blues was it enabled me to to write and perform from a different place, other sure. than this place of pain and confession and 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 sort of um, you know putting out all my emotions on display for everybody right. uh the blues are sort of like you know we're gonna part in friday night and we're gonna right. know, let the eagle flies on friday <laughs> right yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it, it was sort of, that's the joyful thing too right, right. So like i actually came to you know the those sort of the body party aspects jump aspects of right. blues yeah which really what i gravitated to gravitate towards versus the the what was me aspects. I'd mm. done the what was me stuff in my own music. Sure, for years. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so absolutely. I'm like, let's boogie on, you know, right. on the blue stuff. <laughs> right. And that was a big relief for me. And what was the, so you talked about the, thank you, Shirley May was received well. Right. Mm. But I know that you did take a little bit of a break between that album and when you did immerse yourself in blues. Big so, break. right. So what was that decision like for you to step away and move into the kind of production side of the house? I guess twofold. I mean, like I said earlier, I, I, I was I was burned out mm-hmm. on and sort of burying my soul, right? Um, and I, and yeah, that was like burying my soul to the nth degree with the Shirley May thing. Sure. Um, when I made the album, I you know I was so immersed in it, it, it put my marriage at real risk, mm. and I felt like I needed to be present. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. I'm going exactly. theme here yeah. uh, in in my marriage and and and, and focus on that part of my life and I was I was a young dad by that point um and so I I I didn't feel like there was room for both in my life sure at that time um and yeah this is those two things and and then I I started you know I was working as an A&R executive at a label 
called Shot Factory, and we were signing some artists. And I found myself, you know, signing folks and sort of guiding, you know, uh, the direction of albums for certain artists in some instances, being in the studio and producing them. And I love that creative outlet. I, yeah. it, was, it was a great, going back to what I said before, I mean, super collaborative yeah. and, you know, and helping someone else find their, you know, achieve their vision. Uh, I loved it. I love producing. And, and so I felt, well, that's cool. You know, yeah. I can, I can be happy just helping other people make their records. And, yeah. uh, that's, that's, and it keeps a little bit of a healthy distance between me and, you know, my, my deep, dark, you know, all immersive, you know, creative instincts. And right. that's cool. And so I did that for a lot of years and I was super fine with it. You know, so I, I didn't, I didn't see it as, um, you know, I, I moved into that space really, uh, you know, fully and open heartedly. And there was no sense of like, Fuck you, right. system. <laughs> right. I'm, you, know, right. you won't have Sean Amos to kick around anymore. I mean, right. you know, it wasn't like you know, right. big, you know it was yeah. just like yeah. this is just where I'm at now. Yeah, and, and it was totally cool. Hell and yeah. and I would have, you know, again, if I hadn't been invited to go play blues, I, I could have still been doing that. And the, yeah. the, you know, there was there was nothing in my own there was nothing in my own life that was drawing me back into playing. There's nothing that excited right. me, you know, or yeah. compelled me to play my own stuff. Right. And, and that's still kind of the case. You know, if, if I'm not compelled, you know, to write or sing, then I don't write or sing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and if I'm compelled to do it and something, if I feel like I have something to say, right. Then I say it. Um, but I, I don't, but, but I, I'm not motivated to make music just, just to say I make music. Right. You know, um, or, or because, yeah, you know, an album cycle's coming up, and I gotta put something else out to right. feed the beast. Yeah, you know, I, if I've got something to say, I'll say it. Uh, right. And if not, I won't. And there was a long period of time I didn't have anything to say, right. uh, so yeah. I didn't. listening to After the Encore. I am Joe Shaw, and I'm here with the Reverend Sean Amos. So, Rev, we talked at the beginning of the episode about what blues means to you, what blues means to us, what blues means to the collective we, right, as a society, and uh, which is a lot of things to say, right? <laughs> but, but, and you talked about how you were, you kind of stepped away from the performing space, and it wasn't until you were asked to front a blues band that you really started realizing, oh, this is the joyful aspect of blues, and it's really invigorating and exciting me. So walk me through, what was that experience like about just being asked? Like, how did that even come about? And let's kind of go from there. 
uh, an old bandmate of mine said, I'm going to play some blues. You want to come? <laughs> it's very as that. Right, right. I'm like, all right. I mean, he, when I was doing A&R at the label, I, I uh, oversaw a lot of uh, you know, blues historical compilations. Okay, I produced gotcha. a, a, a box of John Lee Hooker's definitive okay. recordings. I did some work with Johnny uh, Lee Hooker, Johnny Guitar Watson's estate, So, um, and, a, and a bunch of others. And so I, I was you know, considered, I guess, by some, including my expand made to be a bit of a, you know, an expert on, on, on blues. Sure. Certain, yeah. certain eras of blues. And so he knew that if I came over there, I could probably put together a pretty good set list. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, and we, and we played together. And so he, he, you know, he, he knew, he knew I could sing. And so he was just, I think, um, yeah, he, he, he was just being a buddy. Yeah. And so, uh, and it was in Italy. And so if someone calls you up and says, you want to sing blues in Italy for a couple of weeks? Right. <laughs> it's like, how do you say no to that? What are you, you going to say? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I'm booked. Yeah, so, I'm good. Idiot that. <laughs> so I mean, it's just like, yeah, of course. I'll right. Exactly. Um, so it was pretty simple. Uh, but so I, I wasn't looking, it, was, it wasn't like a career move. It wasn't, I wasn't looking, again, no expectations, right? Right, I, exactly. It's like, I'll go to Italy in two weeks and sing some blues. Yeah. One. And it, it just turned into a real... Um, life-changing moment i mean I, I i was not prepared i wasn't going there thinking i'm going to change the you know course of my creative life I right just i have a good time for a couple weeks. right um but it, it really touched me in a way that was truly profound i mean it was the one of the, it was the most profound uh performing and creative experiences i've ever had and and so uh it, it was easy for me to to make the commitment sure. to, to the genre and to sort of move the uh the sort of arc of my creative life in that direction yeah so when did you because your previous albums you were just sean amos correct mm -hmm. so when did you decide to become the rev like when did you get ordained <laughs> the italians <laughs> ordained me that's so, awesome yeah so we, we were doing these gigs and uh after the gigs they would say el reverendo el reverendo and uh I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> and and my my friend Jeremy Parzin, he lives in Houston actually. Uh, he was he's an Italian scholar, aside from being a great guitarist. Yeah. So they're calling you Reverend. They're calling you Reverend. Like, what the hell? Why are they calling you Reverend? Right. And, and they were responding to my performance. Yeah. You know? and, oh. and so when I was doing the singer songwriter thing, I was a very quintessential shoegazer, angst ridden performer. I played acoustic guitar at the time. Okay. And I was a really young, because the music I was singing was. Yeah, in my own mind, at least this, you know, confessional, deep pained, you know, personal study. Right. You know, I'm burying my soul on stage. And so I, I was very, um, I was just a really self-conscious performer. Sure. And I was a very uncomfortable performer. Mm. And I felt like, you know, what I was saying was enough. You right. know, I, I didn't need to, I, I placed a little value on the idea of entertaining people. Mm. Um, gotcha. And so... But when I went to Italy and was singing these songs, there were other people's songs, so I was unburdened by any you know, yeah. kind of emotional attachment to right. it. Um, there were someone else's fiction I was singing. Yeah. And and I was having a fucking good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so I just sort of you know came out as a different kind of performer. And not even in a, in a very like... There was this thing. I mean, literally, it was like it was sort of the heavens opened up, and this hand just sort of like reached down, you know, into my head, down into my heart, yeah. and, and out to the crowd. And it's still that way. You know, yeah. there's just there's just this sort of through line from mm. whatever 
you know, the spirit is, you know, into my body, out to the crowd. And that never happened to me before. Uh, and, and it only happens when I sing that music. Yeah. yeah. And I've sung some of my older material since, not often. And it's a whole different headspace for me. Sure. Yeah, if, I, if I pull out a Shirley May song right. from that album or, 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 or songs from my other albums, I'm just completely in a different headspace. Yeah. It's not that enjoyable again. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, it, 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 that, that's the wrong word. It, it's, just, it's just different. Yeah. Um, but it's the, it, it, it's the combination of you know, singing in that genre um, just does something to me. You know? yeah. And it did in that moment. They called me the reverend. I'm like, well, hell, if a bunch of you know, Italian Catholics are going to call me a reverend, I mean, who am I to refuse? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Who am I to deny them? Yeah. And so, uh, so I came back to the States. I just said, well, that's it. There it I'm is. the Reverend Sean Amos. Right. Uh, I th- the other thing was, I think at first I needed the, the, um, I needed the, like a, a little bit of a firewall, you know, mm, um, between sure. sort of, Again, because I, I, I'd gotten so sort of dangerously immersed in my songwriting before that I felt like, well, if I'm the Reverend Sean Amos, then there's, it was almost like my Ziggy Stardust or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, it, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's like it's not me. I, I can sort of protect my own sanity. Right, know, yeah. In my, in my own life. Yeah. And, and, and I can sort of be inoculated somehow right. from having this thing get in me too much. Um, what I've discovered in the five years that I've been doing it is that you know a, a fusion has happened now mm. you know and and whereas i think early on it was a character you know in large part a character born out of you know me but a character right. and i think what's happening now is that it, it's um you know i'm more the reverend the reverend's more me right it, it, <laughs> right it, yeah it's sort of like a you know the 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 uh, the amalgamation is happening. <laughs> yeah. I like it. So when did you? So how do I want to put this? You are, in my opinion, one of the best harp players, harmonica oh, players I've you, listened to, and I'm a huge Little Walter fan. Yeah, so, so how did you pick up? How did you pick that up? Right, because you had talked about playing the guitar. So when did you make the uh, add that into your repertoire? Yeah, it's high price. Thanks, man. You're welcome. Um, I I always play, I played harp when I played. Uh, my sort of singer-songwriter stuff. Okay. Uh, and, but it was harp, you know, in the sort of Neil Young, Bob Dylan tradition. Sure. So, you know, the harmonica holder. And right, Huffin yeah. Huffin' and Puffin'. And, right. You know, um, and, and that was sort of my harmonica playing. So I was familiar with the instrument. Gotcha. Um, it wasn't a mystery to me. But blues playing and folk harp playing are two totally different things. Yeah. And so I never even owned an amp until yeah, I became a blues player. Uh, and, and so it was really a thing where... Um, it was this intention, you know, I, I think yeah. I, I got to a point where I realized, you know, what can I really, what can I have any chance of mastering? Sure. And, and yeah. I was never going to master guitar. And frankly, I, I never was that interested in guitar. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I used it as a device to write songs, but I never liked holding it. I never, I, I just, I, I always felt like, ugh, you know, yeah, yeah. It, and, and I love guitar playing but I just I just never felt like I had much to contribute to the world of guitar playing right. <laughs> uh, and, and so it just felt like a burden yeah um, and so that wasn't going to happen and I, I you know I played piano a little bit enough just to understand composition but yeah you know, I was never going to master any of these things but harmonica was the thing where I felt like you know, I could have a chance of mastering this yeah you know, if I if I just sort of get rid of everything else right <laughs> you know? right uh, and so yeah. I got rid of guitar and I got rid of everything else and, and I just decided I'm going to really focus on Heart playing, 
Yeah. And, and I still do. I, do. I, I carry a harp everywhere I go. Yeah, there's one. That is so badass. I, so yeah, it was <laughs> it's, it's so great about the instrument because it's so portable, right? And you can, right. You can carry it and and you can always practice. You can always have it on you. You can always stay connected to it. And that's just what I decided to do. Yeah. And so it's just a real big part of my life, and I play it all the time. And I and I find that as a singer, it, it's really easy to, for me at least, to um, to find my voice. You know, yeah. Through, through that instrument, and so. Uh, I love it. I really love it. I mean, it's the first thing I've loved as much as I've loved singing, as much as I've loved songwriting. Right. I mean, I equally love playing harmonica. I think it comes through in it. And I, I think, you know, I mean, I got a long way to go. I'm not, I'm no little Walter, but <laughs> I, um, it, it feels like I've, 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 I've got something to say as a harmonica yeah. player. I guess that's the yeah. thing. I guess yeah, I, I've never exactly. felt like I had anything to say as a guitar player. Sure. You know, um, I feel like I have something to say as a harmonica player. And I feel like there's a way in which I play that uh, clearly owes itself to you know Chicago sort of 1950s 60s stuff playing but yeah I, I think I, I play a little bit like a blues man a little bit like a songwriter yeah um and and that feels like a like, like a lane I've yeah. Got, yeah I really feel that the harmonica specifically as it relates to blues helps put a almost an exclamation point on whatever you're singing or saying right like it's it, it's a it's a little bit of a like a flare like a flourish a flourish is really what I guess, it, you yeah. know like I mean, I mean in and to me, that's what I love about blues is I, I love hearing the, the, the soul and the, the passion and the joy or the angst, depending on, you know, who's singing or mm -hmm. what they're singing. But I feel like with the, with the harp, it's really just adding all of these layers to what has just been sung and what's about to be sung. I guess, yeah, it's a color for me. I, 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 I you know, I, I am, I'm not a fan of solos in general. I, I feel like a lot of the problems uh, that blues has is that it, it becomes home to every um, guitar player, harp player who just wants to prattle on all day and, and sort of fair, you know, and, fair, and, and, and fair. wank off on you know, <laughs> twenty minute solos. I, 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 I'm, and I'm just you know I'm yeah. bored. This is not a people who deserve to play that long. I sure, mean, like Coltrane deserves to play like a solo. Fair. Miles Davis deserves to play a right. solo. But, and this is not a lot of people who like deserve to play for that long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and I'm not one of them. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I just feel like um, that self-congratulatory mm. aspect of, of, of blues, you know, jam band music. Sure. I, I have little patience for. It. And so I, um, you know, I, I, I'd like to keep the soloing. So I wouldn't consider myself like a harmonica in that sense. Like I, sure. I, I, I okay. would never I get up on stage and just like go like, off for, you know, like, 10 minutes. On right. It. So yeah. I, I just feel like, Oh God, you know, it's embarrassing. <laughs> Um, but I, I do like, you know, a uh, short, the going back to your punctuation thing. Yeah. You know, I, right. I, I think that, um, it, it, it's, um, what is it? It, it? There's an emotional release. I think that, that it provides yes. in a song and, and certainly for me personally. And I find, I find like the times I end up wanting to play a solo or because I've, I've got, I've reach this sort of friend, emotional frenzy in myself right. that can only be fully let out through playing. Yep. Yeah. Um, yep. If I was James Brown, I might just you know, scream and howl, but, right. you know, but, but I'm not. So I, I feel like the, the, that 
it, it, it is a release and it's yeah. sort of a, it, it you know I, i'm being guided by my emotions are guiding me in a certain way that end up sort of leading me to the harmonica um but i i, I choose not to stay there very long because right. I, I i don't i don't want to bore anyone else or myself right <laughs> so walk me through <clears throat> you have Two full full length albums out as the Reverend Sean Amos, right? And then you also just released the Sunday Table Blues, Kitchen Table Blues, Kitchen Table Blues. Yeah, so we, it, there's a. And those were two two volumes. Is were they released technically as EPs or? Yeah, the two two EPs. Okay. Uh, yeah, so there's an e, there, there there's I guess there's three EPs technically. There, there's a the first thing we did was uh, the Reverend Sean Amos tells it, which is an EP that's mainly just you know Chicago style blues covers. That was just yep. me just learning the genre and having yeah. fun and exploring yeah. it, and then um. And then uh, the first full length was uh, called The Reverend Seamus Loves You, and that was recorded in Shreveport, Louisiana. Oh, wow. Uh, that Min, uh, produced by Mindy Bear. And that was sort of my first step at writing in the genre and sort of contributing my own, you know, what I hope would be blue standards one day you know, to, to, the, to the genre. And then we did a live EP with that same band, uh, that, The Brotherhood. Uh, and then... And then my second album was released last year, Breaks It Down, which is sort of more of like a, I mean, I guess, I guess technically it's a blues album, but it, it's, it has a bit of a 60s freedom song kind of yes. protest element to it. Um, but the, the album was really inspired by Mavis Staples and the, and the Staples Singers. Okay. And a, lot, a lot of the sort of, you know, uh, the freedom songs that came out in the 1960s, Civil Rights yeah. Movement. So there, there's, there's, it, it, it stretches the genre a little bit. You can hear that a lot in the track two, 2017. Yeah, yeah, for you sure, know? for sure. Um, and then we did, I, I, I had a YouTube series for uh, about a year and a half called kitchen table blues. Right. And we did 90 episodes of these things where I'd invite people to my house every Sunday and we'd eat food and I'd make food and we'd sit on the kitchen table and play songs. Yeah. And so and we captured that for a YouTube series. And so I just pulled some of my favorite performances from that yeah. series and we did two EPs of that. It's pretty badass. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they're, they're, they're raw. They're, they're all one take and you can hear the kitchen. You can hear people, you know, the kids are running around and you know, dogs barking. And, I mean, but it's, yeah. it's authentic. <laughs> Right. And I think that was like when I think about what I love about blues is the authenticity. And you think about like when I uh, listen to little a lot of little Walter's old stuff, you can kind of hear the like you can hear, you know, the graininess. You can hear the room. You can hear a lot in it, but you can feel the passion. And it just I don't know. It feels super authentic. And your daughter sang on one of those tracks. Right. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's less about authenticity than just lack of self-consciousness. Yes, yeah, and I, yes, I, that's, I, that's I, really I, it. I think that a lot of music, particularly pop music, is just really self-conscious. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, and I think when you're self-conscious, you're, you're, not, you're not being real because yeah. you're worrying about what people think. Right. <laughs> and so... You're um, not being present. Yeah. And exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank back you, Yeah, you're welcome. Very good. <laughs> uh, so... For me, those Kitchen Table Blues things and doing them, forget the release of it, was just, you know, how to just, you know, enjoy making music and yeah. not be self-conscious about it. And releasing it was, a, was a, on my part, sort of a, you know, an act of being, uh, you know, of being unself-conscious. Because, right. you know, <laughs> yeah. it's sort of, oh, am I going to release this thing? There's, cause there's, there's warts in them and they're, they're, they're far from perfect recordings. Uh, but they definitely capture a vibe and a mood. And to yeah. me, that was more important than some kind of a uh, sonic you know, purity. Right. Um, so hopefully people got that. Yeah. But my daughter sang with yeah. me, uh, uh, Piper, who, uh, <laughs> she sings, uh, uh, an Etta James cover. 
I love that song. And, yeah, Mama, he treats your daughter, daughter mean. She's dynamite. She's fucking awesome. Yeah. She's going to medical school now, so she's that. Yeah, she's, she, she ditched me for a real, a, a real career. Yeah. <laughs> she got smart watching her dad live in a, live in a van. Yeah, she's like, no way. And so she's going she's gonna to have, have a real career. Oh, but that track was so good. I was listening to it. I, I, I texted you and was like, is this your daughter? Because yeah. this track is lit. I forwarded I so that text to her. It was so, so good. Yeah, and she's then awesome. You've got, you've got covers on there too where you covered whip it which is just a trip i love that yeah that they're, all, they're all they're, they're all covers on that, on that right series. yeah I, I think I, I went through a period where i was looking to deconstruct rock tunes uh i mean yeah, you know, the common things like you know all rock music all popular music western music is based on blues right so uh, the willie dixon had this famous quote that uh you know blues is the roots and everything is the fruits right yeah and so i love that quote and so it's not so it's not about like Oh, these are blues songs here because anyone who's sort of serious about music knows that anyway. For right. me, it was sort of like, how do you strip away all of the production layers and all of the sort of um, uh, the the shiny, you know, buzzy things of these songs and just reveal the the blues roots of it. You know, so yeah. if you if you like take a house apart and just like reveal its the beams and just the 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 the, the actual structure of this thing. Mm-hmm. I was sort of in, into that for a while. Yeah. You know, the 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 ultimate example of that is on on the uh, Breaks It Down album. We do a cover of Gene Genie, yes. the, the Bowie tune, yes. uh, which gets a lot of play. And then that is sort of like to me that was the best example of sure. it. It's like you know taking a song, stripping away the the glam piece of it and all the sort of you know cock rock piece of it, and just sort of like getting it down to its completely elemental bones. Yeah. Uh, and then the Gene Gene does that. But but there are a lot of versions on Kitchen Table Blues. So that, yeah. that, that was sort of like my my obsession for a while. So like Whip It and, um, God, what else did we do? Uh, uh, I'm spacing now. We did, we did a, a Pablo Cruz song. It was the 70s cheesy band and radio <laughs> band. And we did um, you know, Costello and The Clash and... Yeah. God, the the remote, uh, no, the Romantics is '80s band, and you know Springsteen too. I mean, I, I sort of went on a down the rabbit hole right. for a while on that. Yeah. I'm done with it now, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's nice. It's nice that you've been able to now introduce that to a whole different audience that may not have been aware. Yeah, whoever cares to listen. Yeah, you know, it's uh, we did Christina Aguilera tune also. What? <laughs> You're beautiful. She didn't write. It was in Linda Perry. You're beautiful. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No matter what they say. Blah, yeah, we did a version of that. Oh, that's <laughs> the awesome. Blue, the blue song, <laughs> Prince's uh, 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 "Let's Go Crazy." That's awesome. more of a gospel than a blues. But, right. Uh, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. I mean, you can sort of it doesn't work with everything, but I mean, yeah, anything that's sort of basic, you know, the pop rock music. If you if you like chip away that much yeah. enough, you'll find a, a blues sort of undergirding there. Right. Uh, I like it. So beyond beyond the kitchen table blues, what has been what has been some of the most uh, when you look back at the records or the specific songs or tracks you've produced as the Reverend Sean Amos? What are some of the ones you're most uh, proud of or glad that you did or uh, that you can point to and say this was this was a journey and I'm glad that I've kind of come out the other oh. side and done that song. I'm proud of the whole catalog, man. Right. I, I sort of view my life as like you know, my, my pre-reverend recordings and my reverend recordings. Sure. And, and I find, you know, and I'm proud of all of that. I find the pre-reverend recordings are, you know, uneven, you know, in, in certain places. And I wish I could have, you know, gone back and maybe worked on, you know, a lyric a little bit harder or maybe I could have, you know, been a little more patient with in the studio to achieve a different result. Mm-hmm. I, I don't feel that way with any of the blue stuff so far. Yeah. I, I'm really proud of, um, 
you know both both the songwriting and and, and the production um, yeah. and then they they they, st- they stand up to me so I, i'm i'm a i i feel like i've hopefully found the balance of you know working at it but not like killing the life sopping the life out of it right, right which right. is always a danger in the studio because you can really overthink stuff yeah uh, and and i like and there's and conversely there was a time for me where i didn't really appreciate the studio i thought like the studio's just there to you know document something and let's yeah. be done with it and now i sort of appreciate the fact that you can you know sort of polish a stone yeah. pretty well in the studio yeah. and, and and i like i like i like polishing you know, yeah more than i used to that's good what is on the horizon for you <laughs> um well you know I, I moved to texas a year ago yep. in, in july and and, and i'm and it's taking me this long to even admit that. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm coming up on a year and I, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm really committed to figuring out how I can feel at home here. Uh, cause I, I haven't felt at home here since I, since I came, um, not to anyone's fault. I mean, it's in that present thing. Sure, right? so right. I, I just haven't sort of like allowed myself to, 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 admit it you know and and, and and sort of let let the pieces of it that are attractive you know get in um so i'm really um trying to find a way to to to, to be here and and to enjoy and to find out what pieces of it i can enjoy yeah uh, and one way i'm doing that is i'm going to make an album here so i've, I've been writing uh, for a while and uh and we're gonna go in the studio and i was gonna go back to LA and record in LA mm-hmm. uh, in a familiar studio with familiar you know people and, right. and my familiar neighborhoods and I decided I'm gonna go record in Austin instead so uh, so I'm going to in June and we're gonna make an album uh, and I'm looking forward to that and, and that's sort of my main focus right now just yeah. you know, finishing writing around the album um, making it finishing it polishing it yeah uh, till it's you know polished enough but not overly polished <laughs> and uh, and that's my focus for, for, for next few months. I like it. Yeah, and then get my kid off to college. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, as we wrap up, is there one last piece of life advice that you like to give out that you would like to give out at this time? I never give out advice. <laughs> I'm not that presumptuous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Don't overpolish, yeah, maybe? <laughs> yeah. Keep the faith. Have some fun. Right. Be present. There yeah. you go. All right. Keep the fifth house and fun. Right. That's it, man. Simple. Well, you've been listening to After the Encore. I'm Joe Shaw, and uh, the Reverend Sean Amos is going to play us out.
This podcast is powered by Roberts Media Group, your resource for podcast development. For more programming and advertising opportunities, please visit us at robertsmediagroup.co.